0: As, um, as a new century began, the ever-expanding Roman Empire faced a new crisis. The empire needed more money. Well, maybe that wasn't a new crisis. Maybe that was a continual crisis. All governments need more money. Raising taxes was the easy thing to do to get more money. Collecting them, well, actually collecting the taxes was a lot harder. So you had tax collectors in all of these provinces, and being a tax collector, boy, that was a powerful and a lucrative position. Not because you could collect taxes and keep a percentage for yourself. That was all legal. Every tax collector did that. But because the empire didn't know how many people were in your district. They didn't know how many people you were taxing. And all you had to do to get rich quick as somebody who... um, as somebody who was a tax collector, was you just had to under-report how many people you had to collect from in your district. You see, if you had five, if you reported you had 5,000 people in your district and you collected the taxes for them, you could keep 10% and send the 90% off to Rome and they'd be happy. But if you reported that you only had 5,000 people in your district and you really had 10,000, then you could send the 90% of the taxes you collected from the first 5,000 off to Rome and they'd be happy. And you could keep 100% of the taxes you collected from the other 5,000 and put them all in your wallet. Now that's a job everybody wants to have. That's lucrative. So Rome had to monitor the population, not just the tax collectors that collected the taxes, but they had to monitor the population. And the way they did this was they had this great big gathering in Rome where every Roman citizen had to make a pilgrimage to Rome and they signed their name on the dotted line, so to speak. They went and literally signed their name and claimed their Roman citizenship. And therefore they knew how all the Roman citizens and who they could tax. But the problem was Rome as an empire had been expanding. And now they had all kinds of people that were not Roman citizens, but subjects of the empire. And they need to figure, they needed to figure out how in the world do we tax the people that aren't Roman citizens? Do we have them all come to Rome and register? Well that was that was a little problematic. Having everyone from an ever expanding empire come to one place and register like Rome would be a very difficult proposition. It had an an unwanted result. And what was that? Well, it was disease. It was outbreak. It was a pandemic of all kinds of things. You see, when you gather a lot of people together in one place who haven't lived together or been together, and they come from all over the place, disease is the most common thing that breaks out. So what you have now is you have this issue that the Romans had to figure out a different way to figure out how many people were everywhere, and they decided on a new and a bold strategy. They were going to have a localized census was a brilliant strategy, better numbers, less graft, and less expense for the empire to bring everybody together. And oh, yes, you could avoid having a pandemic. Not a bad idea. It had never really been tried before, not by an empire, but the Romans decided they would put this into practice. So when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, he was tasked by Rome, by Caesar uh, Augustus, that he had to have some way of getting this localized census put together. So this registration was ordered by Rome, uh, and, and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a particular Greek word that means enrollment. It means to enter in public records the names of men, their property, and income. So this was totally designed to get taxes. But how do you do that? How do you get them together in some kind of fashion to do this registration? What procedures do you use? Do you send out soldiers? Do you hire census takers and go door to door a lot like we do now? I mean, how do we do this? There wasn't a, a pattern. There wasn't a way that had been done in this particular process. So they decided they shouldn't just use government officials because if you just use government officials, They've got all kinds of reasons to graft, to under-report, to, to, you know, line their own pockets. So how do we do this? Well, Quirinius was pretty sharp. He and his Roman counterparts found a particular way to do this. They capitalized in their region on the important Semitic idea of genealogy, your ancestral home, your heritage. This was an important part for everybody in the Semitic world, Jews included. Ancient people didn't have last names. They had clans. They had tribes. They had ancestral connections. They had local designations. That's why we have in the Bible, in the New Testament, Simon of Cyrene. That's why we have Joseph of Arimathea. It's why we have Jesus of Nazareth. Because your your designation was where you were from or what clan you were a part of or something along that line. So everybody was conscious. Everybody could trace their own genealogy. They knew where they came from. And so you can have all these people then go home. That was the way that Quirinius decided that this should be done. They could all go home. They could all go home to their clans. Their clans could all gather in ancestral homes in the old family spot. And there they could do the census. That way, it's all family, all people that are related to people. Uh, You could avoid the disease. You could avoid underreporting. Nobody wants to rip anybody off. And most important, all the work was local. All the expense was on the people themselves to get to their local ancestral home, all was on the citizens of the empire. And there was more income then that Rome would receive and less graft and lower expenses. What's not to like about this process? And so there it was, this amazing experience where Joseph traveled with Mary from the north, from Galilee, from their, from their present home in Nazareth. They traveled south to Judah, to Judea, to Bethlehem, a few miles away from Jerusalem. It wasn't a trip that either one of them were confused about or was difficult for them in the sense that they made that same trip every year. You went to Jerusalem at least once a year. And Bethlehem's just, you know, a few miles down the road from Jerusalem. And so there they are. Traveling this road, the only unusual thing was that Mary was pregnant, but she certainly wasn't the only pregnant woman on the trail as the census was being taken. But it's amazing to read Luke chapter 2 because all of this prophecy was fulfilled because Rome wanted a census without having a pandemic. I don't know, maybe it's the setting we live in that made that interesting to me. Maybe it's what makes it interesting to all of you as well. The world has always suffered from large gatherings of people that come from lots of different places. Did you know that 200,000 soldiers were killed in the Civil War on the battlefield, either killed in action or killed as a result of multiple wounds that they suffered? 200,000 deaths. Some 425,000 soldiers were wounded during the Civil War. But of the 625,000 soldiers who died during the Civil War, 390,000 of them, 60-plus percent, died not from the battlefield, but from disease. Every war that has ever been fought up until the modern age has always resulted in more people dying from disease than from spears or guns or arrows. Sixty plus percent of those who died in the Civil War, the soldiers died from pneumonia, typhoid, malaria, all kinds of diseases. When you put that many people together in that small a setting, you're going to die from disease more than you're going to die from a battle. Disease killed more than the battles. Pandemics always kill more than the wars. We've talked a lot in in the news media about the Spanish. Flew a hundred years ago, 1918, 1919, when this when that pandemic hit, the last one to really hit the world. The date should be interesting to you. 1918, 1919. You know why those dates are interesting? It's because World War I was ending. And all those soldiers from all those countries that fought in World War One, when the war ended, what did they do? They all went home. And when they all went home, they took all of the diseases that had been running around the troops as they went into battle. They took them to every portion of the world. 50,000 people were killed in World War One. Millions, millions then died of the resulting pandemic. In, in reality, they guess, they assume, that a third of the world's entire population contracted the Spanish flu. today with the ease of travel it didn't take a world war to spread a pandemic. All it took was for residents of one place in China to travel from where it was to somewhere else or somebody from some other part of the world to come into that region of, of China and all of a sudden one two three ten people a hundred people spreading out around the world and what have you got? you've got what we're living in, a pandemic. 13 plus million cases have been reported and 270,000 deaths in the United States. And that pales in comparison to the 62 plus million around the world who have contracted this virus and the 1.459 heading towards 1.5 million deaths that have occurred around the world. The numbers are rising every day. Could it surprise us? It shouldn't surprise us, particularly in what we've been living through, that Rome called for a local census. (laughs) When you do anything you could to avoid being in a plague or a pandemic or an epidemic, they're deadly. And every generation had experienced that in some way. They did everything they could to avoid it. And so they came up with the idea of a census to avoid a pandemic. Well, why connect all of this? Why why talk about all these details? Why rehash all these numbers and deaths and tragedies? Well, I think it's very important that we rehash it and remember it because it's very easy to forget that Jesus was born in the midst of a census in order to avoid a pandemic. It's easy to forget that God is still present and active in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of all the political upheaval, of all the social unrest that we find ourselves. It's easy to forget that there is always hope in the middle of hopelessness, that there's always healing, even in the midst of pain, that there's always freedom in the midst of occupation, that there is always God working in the very place where oppression exists, where governments control, where anger and social rest occur. There is always, always God at work. Mary and Joseph couldn't find lodging but God found them a stable, stable. No, I I, I didn't stutter. God found them a stable, stable. Shepherds were those unclean folks. Shepherds were those unclean members who couldn't worship at the temple. They were in the fields taking care of the sheep that probably were used as sacrifice in the temple, but as shepherds, because they took care of sheep, they couldn't go into the temple. And so these unclean shepherds who couldn't find lodging, who couldn't be in the temple worship themselves, God sent his son to them, to them, mind you. They got to worship in the temple, in front of the temple, God sent his son, the temple of light, the temple of hope, the temple of life, the temple of salvation, to them and turned a horse trough into a throne, and he made a shed into a royal palace. A census was ordered to count the number of people so that they could be taxed. God sent Jesus to remind the human race that everyone counts and that he's already counted the hairs on your head. Even nobodies, even shepherds, even Mary and Joseph who couldn't find a room in the inn were counted, lifted up, noticed. God sent his son into the world to untax them and to unburden humankind of its sin. Don't let your circumstances fool us. Don't let our circumstances fool us. Don't let your situation deceive you. There is hope in the world because God is present, because God is real, because God is active. There's hope when plagues ravage Egypt. There's hope when Gideon faces the Philistines, hopelessly outnumbered. There's hope when a shepherd boy sheds the king's armor and faces the giant alone. There's hope when one lone prophet stands before 450 prophets of Baal. There's hope when you're thrown into the lion's den or when you're cast into the fiery furnace. You see, there's always a fourth man in the furnace that you find yourself in. There's hope when in the midst of fears about a census and about a pandemic, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. You see, we're Exodus people. Were Exodus people who, like the generation that was freed from Egypt, gathered at one point in the wilderness for a census, reeling from a year of confrontation of multiple plagues, of an Egyptian-wide pandemic of boils and locusts and sudden death infant syndrome, and were assured by God in Exodus fifteen that if they and any more pandemics. We're Exodus people. Luke 2 reminds us that we're always Advent people too, who have been waiting and waiting and waiting. Does it seem like the year 2020 is longer than any year in the history of the world? I know some people that didn't even when we did the clocks fall back. I knew some people that refused to turn their clocks back because they didn't want to give 2020 one more hour. See, we're Advent people, (coughs) Advent people who have been waiting for all of 2020 to be freed from this pandemic isolation, to be able to get away from this fear, to gather together, to be together, to not be afraid of one another, to go into this to something that is known rather than living what seems to be day to day in the unknown who have waited for deliverance from this unseen enemy, this COVID-19. What an innocuous name for what it has done. Living in anticipation of a new day, of a new beginning, of a new hope. We have been in an Advent posture ever since March. I don't care what the church calendar says, we've been waiting, anticipating, And we're still in that season of waiting and anticipating. You see, we're not just Advent people, we're shepherds. Who, like the church today, must come to an understanding that the old days of a temple-centered worship, a caste system that says that you've got to come to me in order to worship, is now changing. Because God always meets us in reality. He always meets us where we really, really are. Even if that's in a stable or in a manger. The kind of worship that we're doing going forward, the kind of church that we're going to be going forward is no longer a place where we simply say to the society, to the culture, you come to us. But worship, but the church, is now an opportunity for us as the body of Christ to go where people are, wherever they are. Even in poor communities where the conditions are rough and the only thing on the floor is straw. There's hope for the church. There's hope for the world. There's hope for all of us in this pandemic. We will never be the same. But like the admonition in Exodus to the nation of Israel, we can be more like him. And God will meet us in the midst of a census and in the middle of a pandemic and change who we are. Thanks be to God.